I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, and you'll realize that even though I said I plan to be in Revelation, I'm not in Revelation this morning. Uh, I want to pick up our study of Revelation, but maybe uh, it will help you appreciate it really is a lot of work to break new ground in a book when you're doing a series, uh, especially of Revelation. There's a lot to consider. And I appreciated this uh, a, a month or two ago when uh, my major professor that I studied under for my PhD program was in town and we went to lunch with him and his wife. And he's recently published a book. He's, he's a major uh, commentator. His name's on a lot of the commentaries in the series. So he's a public, he's probably published more than I could ever read, actually, in the rest of uh, my lifetime. But he just published recently a handbook in a series that goes through the New Testament. He published the Hebrews through Revelation volume. And he sent me a copy of it, which was really nice of him, and, I, and I've been using a little bit of the Revelation in, in preparation for my sermon series. But at lunch that day, he said, I was so glad to get asked to do that because I've never, never worked through Revelation before. And I'm like, what? You know, you're like a leading New Testament scholar and you've never worked through that book? But in, until you take the time to really work with the original text, really read the literature, uh, in, in Revelation, there's so much to read. You know, it's a, sometimes a greatly debated uh, New Testament book. And so I'm trying to, to whittle all that down and also bring what God has for us from that. So you pray about that, and I, I, I'm going to try to be in Revelation chapter 11 uh, next time. I'm not just, I'm not, you know, assuming that you all came with bated breath, you know, to hear Revelation 11 either. We just want to hear from God's Word. And uh, because of what our church is doing right now, because of the decisions we're making to go to a new property, we're thinking about ministry and how that's going to shape us and so forth, uh, I think we need to anchor the text like we have here, beginning in Matthew 9. Did I say Luke? Matthew 9. Uh, tell you what, let me get... Uh, all right, there we go. Uh, we're going to be in verse 16, but I'm going to start with Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 35. Matthew 9, 35. Wow, that was a major preaching faux pas right there, you know. <laughs> so you would have been like, where, where is he reading? You must have a really weird version, because uh, that's not what I'm reading. Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. These are Jesus' words uh, to his disciples, but we're going to back up a little bit and get the context. In verse 35, Jesus went through all, all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. We have a lot of stories of Jesus' healings and miracles in, in the New Testament. John said, if all the stories were written, the books of the world can't contain them all. And here we have one of those scriptures where Jesus goes out and it's just this blanket statement that everywhere he goes, he's, he's doing these miraculous things. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He, he, literally, the verb is he convulsed. Splanchnizomai, it's the, that center of your body that you... When something is wrong or you, you have a nervous situation, you feel it right here. That's where that verb comes from. The ancients saw our emotions and everything in our life was centered here. Jesus convulsed in his humanity because he saw these helpless people. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then we go into chapter 10. And it says, He called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belt, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, literally people, it's the word anthropos here, it's not males, but beware of people. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And we're going to stop Jesus' instructions there in that verse. I can imagine the twelve disciples listening carefully to Jesus' instructions with mixed emotions of this joyful anticipation and yet this nervous fear. Jesus was sending them on their own mission, two by two, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Now, if you're reading Matthew's gospel up until now, the disciples had really sort of only been in the background. I mean, if you, if you look at the verbs, I did this this week, I, I traced Matthew's gospel and just looked at all the verbs that had to do with the disciples' ministry. And there's not very many of them. Three of them say that the disciples followed Jesus. And once it says that they surrounded him to listen to him. This is when he sat down uh, to, to teach the Sermon on the Mount and, and the disciples came and sat around him. And there's a single scene in chapter 9 where they shared a meal with him, with the tax collectors and sinners. And in chapter 8, they uh, worship him when he's in the boat and he has calmed the storm. They're in awe of him. 
But now, in chapter 9, Jesus urges all of his disciples who are with him, not just the 12, but all of his followers, to pray the Lord of the harvest, that, that the Lord would provide laborers to go out and preach the gospel and to save people, to bring them in. And he calls together 12 of them in particular. He singles them out from among his disciples to be the first wave of answer to that prayer. So Jesus calls them by name and gives them a measure of his miraculous power so that they can represent him. And then he starts to teach them. And the first series of directives Jesus offers to them on that occasion sounds probably very familiar to them. And they had already been with Jesus. They had already already traveled around with him. Jesus says, don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. That sounds a little odd to us that Jesus is saying, don't go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Don't go to the Samaritans. But Jesus came to rescue his people. There's a long discussion about this, but basically he is trying to redeem his people so that they can take the gospel to the world. And so he sends his disciples specifically to their own people. That was his focus in ministry. And he says some would welcome them and be blessed. Others would tell them to go away. There would be a warning of judgment against them. But then their assignment takes this dramatic turn into new territory. Uncomfortable territory. Because Jesus begins to say in verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. I think we're really familiar with passages like this, and we don't really think hard about how they struck the first hearers. Because after this, Jesus begins to describe for them some of their future experiences if they will continue to preach the gospel. He says in verse 17, they'll be flogged in the synagogues. That's the 49 lashes, or the 39 lashes, I should say, of the Jews. Not not a fun experience at all. They would be dragged before Gentile rulers to give account for their message. They would be ministering in a culture where they would be hated and where even close family members, he says, would deliver them up for execution. You know how you're listening sometimes to the radio and there's that really obnoxious eh, 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 that comes on, you know, and it's like the, the emergency broadcast system, all right? We, I grew up in Michigan. We had our own little sirens uh, for tornadoes, and we had the same thing in Minnesota. And whenever the little ant, ant, ant comes on the radio, I, it's always a test, right? This is only a test. And it says, if you were not a test, they would give you instructions about what to do. Well, it wasn't until I moved to the South that I actually heard an actual uh, real live uh, beep come in, an actual thing. I think it was down here in South Carolina. It was just flooding or something like that. But it was the first time I'd ever heard this, eh, 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 and they started giving instructions. And I was like, oh, no, we're all going to die. You know, that's what I thought. <laughs> and and I, it, it, it scared me at first. And I was really relieved it was just flooding. You know, but I started looking around thinking there was going to be like a tsunami coming or something like that. Because I was sort of conditioned by this. Well, the words of Jesus, I think, might have had a very startling, arresting effect on the disciples. Because he says, sheep among wolves. Now, sheep are prey animals. They're made for grazing. They frighten quickly. And they can do very little to defend themselves. But wolves are fierce predators with sharp teeth who move in packs. And they actually select and hunt their prey. And they attack at the sheep's throat 
but they don't usually kill the animal right away. Normally the sheep die of shock and blood loss as they are being eaten. And these disciples, having lived in an agrarian culture, they knew exactly the implication when Jesus said sheep among wolves. He was sending them out to minister the gospel as defenseless sheep amid a circling pack of vicious predators seeking an opportunity to devour them. Now, we don't really know, most of us, what that looks like in contemporary America. Not yet, anyway. But they all knew about it. And they know about it today in other countries. North Korea is considered right now the most dangerous for Christian persecution. In North Korea, you have to worship the ruling Kim family. And signs of worship of Jesus Christ are seen as a threat to the government. So if you are discovered as a Christian in North Korea, you're usually executed on the spot. Or you're taken to these labor camps and you're made to work among these horrible conditions and usually you'll die there. And this isn't just the hype of some of the websites telling us this. I've actually verified this information through students in our doctoral ministry program who are pastors uh, from South Korea who say that everybody who escapes over the, the border and, and comes to seek refuge in South Korea are telling exactly the same story. And if you are a North Korean and you're accused of being a Christian, the persecution doesn't just come upon you. They have it so that it comes upon your whole family up to the fourth generation. Even if they're not Christians, if one confesses, everybody gets this punishment. And the current leader, Kim Jong-un, who's often in the news because he keeps firing missiles, is he's expanded these labor camps, and it's estimated that 50 to 70,000 believers, at least professing believers, are currently imprisoned in these camps. So there's tremendous exp uh, uh, pressure to expose Christianity because if you find out about it and you don't say anything, you're in big trouble. People are rewarded for reporting their neighbors. Teachers are taught to look for signs in the children that they may have believing parents who are teaching them certain things about how to be moral and how to live for Jesus Christ. They're, they're taught to look for these things. Government officials watch for any signs that Christians might be meeting together in secret. These believers right now in North Korea are living like sheep amid circling wolves ready to devour them and their children. Can you imagine living like that as a Christian? No, you can't. I mean, if we live like, like a, a Christian normally in that kind of a culture, we'd all be dead in a week or else put in a labor camp. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that the people of a country would try to eradicate Christianity, not if we, not if we believe the Bible, because for no other reason that Jesus says in verse 22 you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus said several things like this in the gospel. This is a lot of this kind of thing in, in, in the gospel of John. He, he explains that the world will hate them because it hated Jesus Christ. Why then do we not see Christianity hated and persecuted at that level here in the United States. Why don't we see it everywhere in the world? Well, actually, we have to realize Christianity is hated. It's hated in America. And right now, 
there are major political figures and organized groups. I'm not going to go into all their names and all that this morning, but there are even a lot of them. They, they, they argue that no one who identifies as a believer in Christ ought to be in the government at all. They should not hold political office because we believe that unless you turn to God through the cross work and, revel- and resurrection of Christ, you will be judged by God. And if you do not turn, ultimately your life is forever in the lake of fire, Revelation 20. And that's considered hate speech. That's a crime. And no public official can really say he loves and cares for his community or his state or his country if he believes people are going to a place called hell. And by the way, it wouldn't be hate speech if they all knew that it was true. I mean, it's not hate speech when you tell somebody the building's on fire and they'd better get out or else they're going to perish. But this criticism of those who believe the gospel does not end with public officials. There are many in our country who hate the gospel. They, they, they believe that pastors and churches should not exist unless they are heavily censured for their hate speech and for not worshiping things like science, which apparently now has all the answers again. So why are we not in the same situation as our brothers and sisters in North Korea. Well, it's because of our history and our heritage. For the past several centuries, there simply have been more of us than them. More genuine believers than active haters of the gospel. But that is really changing. At an alarming rate, only about a third of Americans today claim to believe the gospel or identify with Christianity. And that has been a decline of about 10% over the last decade. Well, at the same time period, atheism has risen about 7%. So now they're saying about 25% of Americans are atheists. And about a third claims some name of Christianity. And if this trend continues, there will soon be more people in America who identify as atheists than who identify as Christians. And everybody else is, of course, somewhere in the middle. In North Korea, it's estimated that only 1.7% of the population is Christian. And of course, you know, the Christian research groups can't really get into North Korea and test all these uh, measures. I don't know how they, how they come up with this, but, but this is uh, based on statistics from the population and so forth. But 1.7% represents Catholicism and everything else that would be something related to Jesus Christ. 1.7%. So it's easy to overwhelm a minority group in your culture and stamp them out. But what might surprise you if you do not know Korea's history is that prior to the 1900s and the rise of communism and socialism, North Korea was heavily evangelized and there were a lot of Christians in North Korea. In fact, the capital of North Korea, Pyongyang, I'm not saying that right, I know, but so something like that, Pyongyang, the capital of North Korea. It, do you know that it was once known as the Jerusalem of the East? It's reported that Kim Jong-un's great-grandfather was actually a part-time missionary. And that his grandfather was a member of a Christian church before he turned to atheism in the 40s, I believe. But due to the rise of communism and socialism, North Korea has turned into a nation that hunts for Christians like wolves in less than four generations. Because those systems of government cannot flourish if people honor Jesus Christ before they honor the government. It's it's not that that people are going to seek out Christians simply because they're Christians. It's because they're keeping them from getting power and they're keeping them from getting recognition. 
And it's been that way since the beginning of Christianity. In the New Testament, if there were Jews who hated Christians and sought to kill them, it was often for theological reasons. Not sometimes political reasons, but often for theological reasons. But if the Gentiles hated Christianity, it was for political reasons. They insisted that you worship the state. You worship the emperor as a god before you worship Jesus Christ. I worry about what our nation will look like by the end of my lifetime. But I often even more worry about what it's going to look like at the end of my children's lifetime, if the world tarries. In fact, coming back to our text, uh, remember that Jesus begins these instructions by speaking about the disciples' ministry to their own people, the Jews. But then after verse 16... You notice this. Remember, I I pointed out, he's saying, just go to your own people. Don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans. But after verse 16, he starts talking about being dragged before kings and Gentile rulers. And here in verse 20, he speaks of family members rising up against family members and enduring to the end until the coming of Jesus Christ. And what it means is that these instructions for the disciples to take the gospel of the world are not just for those days of ministry with Jesus. Jesus has a long-range plan in mind. He's equipping all his disciples to take the gospel in a hostile environment. And as the disciples listen to Jesus describe what their future ministry might look like in the midst of persecution, they're wondering, how are we going to conduct ourselves in this dangerous situation? And Jesus answers this unspoken question immediately using another pair of creatures to explain to the disciples how they should go forth. And this is where I'm going to center uh, the conversation here for the next few minutes before we close. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He told them, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I, I don't want us to miss the significance of this well-known phrase. You, you probably maybe heard it, be harmless as serpents and innocent as doves. And, and may, or, I'm sorry, wise as serpents and harmless as doves is the way I, I, I knew it growing up, memorizing from the King James Version. But this has significant implications for us as we take the gospel not only into a hostile situation, but into a situation that's growing more hostile. And I think that what Jesus says here in this proverbial phrase has a lot of implications for us in the way that we minister today. Wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Not only was this metaphor formative for Jesus' disciples is formative for us. We do not yet experience the level of persecution that has come to North Korea, or we could say this morning Afghanistan, or Somalia, or China, or Libya, or Yemen, and there's several countries like this. But the cancel culture has already begun, and the stage is being set, and our ministry is going to have to take the shape that Jesus gives it. What is the significance of Jesus' saying using serpents and doves. Now, some Bible scholars suspect that Jesus is quoting a proverb that everybody already knows, that people said things like this, to be wise as serpent, innocent as doves. And, and people knew this proverb already. Some, some suspect that, but I, I disagree for at least two reasons. One, we've never found this proverb anywhere else before Jesus states it here in Matthew 10, 16. Secondly, and more importantly, no one 
especially in Jewish culture, would have ever thought to put these two unlikely creatures together in the same expression, the snake and the dove, and actually suggest that faithful believers imitate the characteristic he's pointing out of both. To begin with, no one hearing Jesus that day in Matthew 10 could have missed the fact that he is alluding, most likely, to the serpent in the Garden of Eden who tempted Eve to sin. Remember Genesis 3.1? Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The word subtle in the ancient Greek text of the Old Testament that Jesus often quoted when, when, he, when he preached, at least the gospel writers, when they put the words in the mouths of Jesus and he's quoting the Old Testament, we're reading the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word for wise in our text is actually the word subtle. It's the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Phronomos, it means wise, subtle, cunning, crafty, clever, sly. And because of the serpent's participation in the fall, the serpent has always been associated with cunning. Mostly in a negative sense. In fact, Jesus even himself uses snakes and vipers when in, in Matthew's gospel to talk about the Pharisees. On the other hand, the dove in the ancient world was the picture of innocence and gentleness. It was a creature who would never offend anyone. It says, innocent as a dove. I think most of us, as I said, grew up hearing it harmless. But the word is really from a group of words that has to do, you ready for this? It has to do with vessels of clay in which liquids were poured. And you would mix like wine and water together. The word innocent here is literally a word that means unmixed. In other words, pure, undiluted, no hidden agendas, sincere. The dove depicted this kind of innocence in the ancient world. Natural historians even believed that the dove was a pure animal who had no bile. It was therefore the perfect creature to be an expression of the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. Remember Matthew 3.16, Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and came down upon him. So the serpent and the dove. I cannot think biblically, of any two more, uh, any, any two creatures from the animal kingdom that are more mutually exclusive than the serpent and the dove. In the days of the first Adam, the serpent embodies Satan. In the days of the last Adam, the dove embodies the Holy Spirit. And in the minds of the disciples, therefore, this tension between these two symbols would have been palpable. But Jesus in his unparalleled wisdom, joins together these unlikely creatures and their virtues to produce an approach to ministry that will carry the disciples through any danger that they might face, any challenge that they might face. And I think that they can carry us through ministry as well, and I'm going to explain why. First, you have to understand that cunning by itself is not a vice. It's not a bad thing. In fact, if we read through Proverbs, the same word that Jesus uses here uh, in this verse, you see often this, this idea of being cunning or prudent or wise or discerning. You see this kind of, of uh, virtue exalted in Proverbs, and often the same word, the same Greek word in the Greek text that we see here is used in Proverbs. Jesus even uses the same word in Matthew's Gospel for 
the wise man who builds his house on a rock. And he uses this word to describe the virgins who are ready for the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 25, and then later in Matthew 25 for the faithful steward. Jesus uses the same word. He's saying that when we go forth to minister in his name, we have to have serpent-like shrewdness. We have to be cunning. We have to be prudent. We have to be astute. We have to be judicious, perceptive, aware of our surroundings, knowledgeable. At the same time, we must be completely and sincerely devoted to Christ and service to others with a dove-like quality of innocence, gentleness, purity, holiness, not offending anyone, not desiring to offend them at least. But here's what I want you to understand. Jesus is not just telling his disciples that, you know, sometimes you've got to be cunning. So if you get into a situation, you pull out the cunning part, you know, and get out of it. And sometimes you've got to be innocent, you know, so sometimes let them see that side of you. Let them see the holiness side of you. That's not what he's saying here at all. Jesus is saying something much more profound. He's actually suggesting that his disciples cross-pollinate these two virtues. Now, cross-pollination is not in the New Testament, okay? But I'm trying to give you an illustration here, okay? Cross-pollination of cunningness and innocence. And, and putting these two together for a new ministry virtue that will carry us forward in ministry. Most of you understand, I think, cross-pollination. It's when the pollen from one kind of plant pollinates a different kind of plant, producing a new variety of plant that combines the features of both. And I can't think of a better illustration for what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is urging his disciples to minister with what I'm calling a cunning innocence. I'm trying, trying to, to, to somehow put these two terms together to create a virtue that we don't often think of. A cunning innocence through bringing wisdom together with innocence. And the point is, we can't have one without the other at different times. We have to have both at all times. We cannot be cunning without being innocent. When we are cunning in our presentation of the gospel, you know what happens? We often end up reducing our ministry of the gospel to a conniving strategy that is willing to cloud the message in order to escape persecution. Or perhaps to spin the gospel in a way that is more suitable to the sensibilities of the culture. Or to pay great attention to the apparent success of the mission, but not to think about what God is doing in our lives, not to think about our own purity. To put it bluntly, if we simply want to build a big church with lots going on and public recognition, there, there are cunning ways to do it. But that might not be God's will for us at all. On the other hand, we could be innocent without being cunning, without being wise without watching out, without paying attention, being unaware of our culture and the surroundings. And we can be easily trapped by our words or misunderstood or taken advantage of or abused or disregarded in a way that demeans the gospel and does not allow us to give a clear representation of the gospel. Michael Wilkins says in his commentary on Matthew, he says, without innocence, the keenness of the snake is crafty, a devious menace. He says, without cunning. The innocence of the dove is naive, helpless gullibility. You can't just have the one without the other. What Jesus is saying to us is this. When we take the gospel into our community, we have to make clever and wise decisions 
about what will help us be most effective with the gospel while living in such a way that demonstrates love and holy living, giving a picture of a life that has been transformed by the power of the gospel. A cunning innocence. Now, there are lots of wonderful examples of a cunning innocence in the Bible itself. Jesus himself, I think, is the ultimate example of cunning innocence. Can you think already in your mind, reading through the Gospels, how Jesus was this way? We see his cunning in the way that he navigated his ministry amid the circling wolves of the Jewish religious leaders. If you read the Gospels, I challenge you, read, read one Gospel all the way through. Uh, I, I know it's, it's, it's good to read you know, a chapter a day and that sort of thing, but, but sit down and read one all the way through. You pick up things that you don't pick up just reading one chapter at a time. They're always looking for an opportunity to kill Jesus. And you wonder, why don't they just arrest him and, and, and put him on the cross right away? But they don't want to do it in front of the people because, the, because they, they want their power, they want their influence, and they know that, that Jesus is popular. Jesus knows this, and he's going to play on it. Jesus, for instance, sometimes does not walk openly. He go, in, in John 7, he, at the beginning, he, he goes to the feast, but he goes secretly. And all of a sudden, he appears in the temple and he's teaching people. Well, if he was trying to hide from them, why is he there? Because he knows they're not going to do anything to him in public. He's cunning. We see his cunning in the keen ways he responds to the Pharisees. Don't we love those stories? They come with this question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus is almost like, you know, I, I've got one hand behind my back, you know, and I, 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 can, I can take this all on. I mean, he, he, he knows exactly what to say. And they ask him all these questions, and, and Jesus parries their attacks with such clarity and force that eventually Matthew twenty two forty six says, no one dared ask him any more questions. They were embarrassed every time. And at the same time, we see Jesus' innocence in the way his enemies could never make any of the charges stick. And in the way he gave himself up for crucifixion, though he had done nothing wrong, 1 Peter 2, 22-25, says that Jesus did no sin. Neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile again. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The Apostle Paul is also a picture of cunning innocence. If we had time to study Paul's ministry to the Corinthians, we would see that he goes to them with humility. He pleads with them to return from their sin. And he actually allows himself as an apostle, though he has all this power as the Lord's apostle, he allows himself to be rebuffed and sent packing. But then he writes a letter to them that cleverly exposes the error of their ways and calls them to repentance. That's why some in Corinth said about Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.10, you know this verse, they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Do you realize that they're able to make that criticism of the Apostle Paul because he is as wise as a serpent and yet innocent as a dove? And earlier... In that chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul would say, Bring it on. I want to hear all of the arguments. And he would answer them. He was wise. He was cunning. In the book of Acts, Paul showed this daring cunning in the way he navigated uh, the gospel opportunities in the cities he visited. I just want to mention one example here. I, I, just, I love this example. When he goes to Philippi, you know the story. He's, he's with Luke and Timothy and Titus, and 
they're ministering in Philippi, and the, the uh, Gentile rulers get upset because they, they start losing money in their businesses because of the slave girl he cast out the demon from. And they drag them in, and they, they beat uh, Silas. I said Titus, right? I meant Silas. They beat Paul and Silas with rods, which I don't have the time to describe this for you, but it's an experience that the Roman government designed so that whatever you did to deserve that, you would never, ever, ever do it again. And they throw them in the inner prison. And Paul could have stopped it. He could have protested because he was a Roman citizen and they did not give him a trial. I, I could not have kept my mouth shut. I'm sorry if I were Paul. Like I, I, I would be pulling out that card all the time. You know? I'd like to have, a, have one of those conference badges. You know? I just want you to know I'm a, I'm a Roman citizen. And so after they sing the hymns at midnight, and there's this earthquake, and the city magistrates, we, we, we don't, aren't familiar with the rest of the story. The city magistrates, they send some representatives to Paul, and they tell him, okay, you can go. And you need to read what the Apostle Paul says there. He, he, he basically says, you tell them to come themselves and make me leave. He says, you beat a Roman citizen without a trial. And then the magistrates are scared and they come personally because they know the law is Paul can have it done to them because he didn't get a trial. They were supposed to go to the beating of the rods now. And they beg him to leave the city because of what Paul could do to them. And Paul took his time. He goes and visits the churches and then he leaves. <laughs> you know, and he wasn't being pugnacious. He wasn't trying to pick a fight. He was being shrewd. You know, he was saying, in essence, he was saying, we all know what went down here. And I don't think this new little church in Philippi is going to have any trouble once I'm gone, are they? No, sir. No, they're not. <laughs> Paul would never have gained that upper hand if he had not been so cunning. And he never would have gained the upper hand if he had not been innocent, if he had done something to deserve the punishment. And you see how these two work hand in hand. And in our own ministries today, we have to learn the virtue, the virtue of cunning innocence. We cannot simply stand there and give the gospel naively without appreciating the competing philosophies that are going on and the conversations we need to have. We have to continually increasing, increase our knowledge of Scripture. That's where the life is. That's where the power is. But we have to gain insight into the wisdom of our culture. We have to understand the fresh and subtle attacks upon the gospel from the feminist agenda, from the LGBTQ community, and the doctrines of social justice. We must be fully aware how governmental forces are at work. They may ultimately subvert our ability to preach the gospel freely. For even if we can explain the gospel with clarity and, and patience, if they're shutting up our voices, we can't navigate the workings of our culture skillfully, like the Apostle Paul, then we're not going to have a voice at all. And on a practical level, we must be prayerfully discerning about how the Lord is leading us. Of course, this last week we voted unanimously to purchase the property on Red Horse Road. And we're trying to be wise about that decision. We want to trust the Lord and move forward. But we want to investigate. We want to be astute about that way forward. But we've already started talking about how we can use that facility for ministry, for discipleship, for events and ministries that will help us to build bridges in the community. I love to hear conversation about that. People are thinking already, how can we use this to reach TR? And we will be doing this in a way 
that allows us to have a voice, but a voice with which we can be clear about the gospel. So we're right to strategize, but we also need to pray that the Lord gives us a measure of cunning about how we can carry out the mission along with innocence, along with lives that are unaffected by the sin which is rampant in this culture. It doesn't matter how good we are at explaining the gospel, if they know we are not following the gospel, if our lives are not transformed by the power of the gospel, we are demeaning the message of the gospel. I think most of us are aware of the most recent scandal in a long line of examples. Sadly, a brilliant apologist who inspired a generation to defend the scriptures, whose life turned out to be less than what he was preaching. You know what? That same story is told again and again and again. I tell you what, for everybody, I, I tell this to, to the pastors that, that I, I have the privilege of teaching every once in a while. Uh, if, if you let yourself get to the point where nobody is allowed to ask a question, nobody questions what you're doing. Oh, no, don't, don't. He, he's above reproach. Don't, uh, you are dead in the water. We are all the same way. We will go with, with our flesh, by, but by the grace of God. That's why we need the church. We need one another. We talk about accountability. We don't really like it. But, but we need it. Don't ever let anybody, don't, don't, don't let them get to the point where nobody says, oh, you know, uh, don't, don't ever question that person. I remember my pastor in Minnesota was, was uh, behind. A, uh, actually, the parents called, told uh, him that that week uh, they were teaching him Romans chapter 3. And uh, the, the, the parents said, you know, everybody's sinned. Even grandma and grandpa, yes, all have sinned. And he said, well, even my, my, the neighbors next door who go to church with us, yes, they've sinned too. And he, the, the child paused and said, even Pastor McLaughlin? And he says, yes, I'm pretty sure he's, he's maybe sinned once or twice, you know, in his life as well. He was sharing this message. But you know what? We, you, we can't get this hushed tone about one another. We're all sinners saved by grace, and we all struggle with temptation. And realizing this, we need to pray that God gives us innocence that he gives us purity, that we take holiness seriously. And as we look forward to how God is going to use us as our influence in the community grows by God's grace, I want to urge you as the people of God to take serious your holiness and your innocence, not simply in the way you look and act in front of people, but by the way you speak and act in private, and not just externals, but the ones we always forget about, right? Internals. Holiness of genuine love and patience and kindness and gentleness. Let people never think that we have a hidden agenda. That the good we are trying to do is diluted with an ulterior motive such as size or power or money or control or fame. Let this community never get that impression, but let them see our genuine love and our genuine earnestness for the gospel. And let that love and concern and holiness be qualified by great wisdom and shrewdness and cunning. Nobody pulling the wool over our eyes as we navigate the time in which we live. This is how Jesus calls us to minister in an increasingly hostile environment. A cunning innocence, a cross-pollination of virtues. We cannot have one without the other. We have to be aware, alert, knowledgeable, informed about the changing political scene and cultural divides, and we must navigate that while keeping ourselves pure from it. 
And just in closing, let me remind you that it is not the only commission here in Matthew 10 that Jesus' disciples get in Matthew's gospel. There's a more familiar one, I think. After his resurrection, Jesus calls his disciples to him again. And when he commissions them, he's very plain about a part of their mission that he doesn't state as clearly in Matthew 10. I can see it in Matthew 10. I don't see it as clearly, though, so I'm going to Matthew 28. Jesus tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And in light of that authority, in light of that power, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then we find this precious promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus sends us to be cunning like the serpent and innocent like the dove because we are going out as sheep among wolves, defenseless prey animals amid vicious predators. But he promises us his continual presence. If Gateway is a growing church, growing both numerically and spiritually, it's only because the Lord, our great shepherd of the sheep, is with us. And he will continue to go with us and lead us and guide us if we continue to follow his instructions for ministry. So let's be a wise people, but let's be a pure people. And may we be characterized by this cunning innocence as we take the gospel unhindered to reach the people of TR. Father.